Exodus 32 is our text tonight. If you have a Bible, Exodus 32, uh, we read a little bit from this chapter last week um, in a comparing and contrasting uh, message with chapter 31. We're going to study 32 um, specifically tonight. So if you've got a Bible, Exodus 32, right toward the end of the book of Exodus. Uh, So tonight, we move into a new series within the book of Exodus. Um, If you've been here for all these, which most of you have, um, you know we've studied the narrative behind the formation of Israel. That was the first 24 chapters or so of Exodus. Um, We studied how God used their captivity to reveal himself to the whole world, that they weren't weren't, uh, in slavery uh, in vain, that God was working something, God was building something, he was preparing them for something, and he was going to use their captivity and the deliverance from captivity to tell the world that there is a God, there is one God, um, his name is Yahweh, um, and, and that he was going to change the world through their deliverance. So if you remember back for those first 24 chapters, the entire backdrop of Exodus, it's God's desire that the world may know him as the one true God, not the gods of Egypt, not the man-made idols of every nation of the world, but Yahweh, which means I am. In our Bibles, it's literally, the, 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 it's, it's always translated the phrase, the Lord, the Lord is the one true God. He created the heavens and the earth. He was worshipped by angels. Adam, by Abel, by Enoch and Noah. If you read the uh, read the early days of Genesis, the whole world worshipped the one true God. There were not nations; there were just tribes of people that were all under the banner of the Lord. But as time moved on, uh, Yahweh was pushed to the side by a few people, um, and those few people became a few tribes, and those few tribes became a few nations. And from Genesis eleven on, the nations were divided uh, because of their rebellion against God. He divided their languages and he scattered the world, scattered the nations across the world, and from that point on, they lost touch with their origin story. They lost touch with the story of Adam, the story of Enoch, the story of Noah, and they fell into different religions, and they actually created their own religions and created their own idols that were, that were similar to each other, right? Every religion has a flood story. Every religion has a similar story about the first people, right? It's all because they, they, had, a, they had a little nugget from, from the, that original story, but it all got you know, confused, and it all got muddled as they rebelled and as they scattered, and all the different religions rose from that mess. Now, God, though, the one true God, the Lord, he showed up to one man named Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I know that I'm just a myth to you. I know I'm just in the background of all these other religions and stories that you've heard, but I'm the one true God. I'm the one that created the heavens and the earth. I'm the one that created you, and I'm going to use you to start my own nation, and I'm going to use my nation to tell the whole world about the one true God. And of course, Exodus 1 through 24 is the story of Abraham's people, the Hebrew people, now called Israel. It's the story of how they become a nation and they begin their mission to paint the world red for the Lord. Now, from Exodus, 30, Exodus 25 to Exodus 20, 31, we've spent a few months studying the designs and the details given for the tabernacle. Um, and it's in those chapters that God gives revelation to Moses and the elders of Israel, um, and he includes tons of in- information, tons of instruction about building a sanctuary, um, about how this tabernacle would be the central hub for worship, community, and ministry. And that's a series, that, that's a study we're going to go back to. We're going to do a Sunday morning 
sermon series on that sometime down the road, Lord willing, because that is what we as a church should be all about, right? We're about worshiping the Lord. We're about building a community for God's people and doing ministry in a world full of God's people and also full of people that don't yet know the Lord. So we, we followed that model and hopefully we learned a lot from those chapters. Now the tabernacle served as this threefold promise, threefold purpose, um, ranging from offering sacrifices to God and worship, bearing each other's burdens, and reaching out to those and meeting the needs of those in the community and whether those that were orphans or widows and even those that were strangers and immigrants in their um, in their uh, area. So the remaining chapters of Exodus picks up as Moses has gotten the revelation from God. Now we believe that when he was up on Sinai for those 40 days and 40 nights, he probably received the book of Genesis, um, which was the backstory for Israel. Uh, remember Moses wrote um, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Moses was living out the book of Exodus, kind of writing it as it was going, and then we believe that when he was on Mount Sinai that he got the book of Genesis given to him as it is recorded in our Bible. So um, again, Genesis happened you know, years and years before, but Moses wrote it down based on the revelation that God gave him during his time on the mountain. So not only did he receive the book of Genesis, but he received the law, right? The law, the Ten Commandments, um, the tablets of stone that were written with the finger of God, and he received the instructions for the tabernacle. So, so far, Moses has been given the book of Genesis. We don't know if he wrote Exodus as it went. We don't know when he actually wrote the book of Exodus, but probably it was, it was pretty much, you know, compiled up to this point. Um, and then as the years would go, he would go on to write Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Of course, those, the, the narratives of those books haven't taken place yet, so he hasn't written them yet. So, at this point, um, he's, gotten that, he's gotten Genesis, he's gotten the law, he's gotten the tabernacle instructions. And from 32 on to chapter 40... On into Numbers and on into Deuteronomy, um, there are some amazing stories um, about Moses and God communicating to each other and interacting with each other um, in ways that are unrivaled by any other relationship in the Bible, any other relationship between God and man. Moses and God have a connection that is so unique and is so powerful. Um, and, and over the next few months, we're going to focus on this relationship between Moses and God. Um, and there's a verse that we'll get to next week or the week after that really captures the heart of this study. Um, in Exodus 30, 33, it says, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man Man speaks to his friend. So as we read these next few chapters in Exodus, and as we read into Numbers, as we read into Deuteronomy, we're going to spend several weeks understanding what it, mean, what it means to be a friend of God, because Moses, more than anybody else in the Bible, models what it means to be in a relationship with God. And, and, and one thing that we really will find out from, from this study is, is it's literally as if, as we read these chapters, it's like God and Moses are just talking to each other face to face. It's like they're just having a conversation. Um, it's really remarkable. It's not just that God is speaking things from Moses to repeat like you find in the prophets or like you find in the uh, most of the Old Testament. It, it's as if, and it's literally as if they're having a conversation. They go back and forth. They talk to each other as if you would talk to your friend. So that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks. Um, instead of a chapter-by-chapter chapter, um, process through the next few books, we're going to follow the narrative from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. So we'll skip most of Leviticus because Leviticus is, is really instructions about their worship. We'll come back to that later um, on a Wednesday night study. Um, but as the title of this series suggests, our main goal is going to study the text in front of us to learn from the sort of relationship that God and Moses have with each other. And, and again, much of the chapters we'll read literally mostly 
feature Moses and God just talking to each other. Moses asking questions that God answers. God telling Moses to do something or asking Moses what he thinks about something. Um, it's incredible because it just seems like normal life for Moses. Um, and God seems to enjoy talking with him. I think sometimes we think that God must love us, but he doesn't really like us. You know, I think we sometimes we think about how God loves people, but it's almost in this distant kind of, you know, I'm better than you, I'm above you, I don't really want nothing to do with you, but I sent somebody to, to save you. That's not what it means to be in a relationship with God, and that's not what it means for God to love us. That what we find from Moses and what we learn from Moses' life is that God enjoys talking to people, right? That God is a personal God who just as he showed up in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve, he wants to show up in our lives and walk hand in hand with us, right? And just as Jesus showed up and walked hand in hand with people, he spent time with people that some people liked and others didn't, right? But they all had this common denominator in that Jesus was a guy they wanted to spend time with. Jesus had friends. He had really good friends. He had best friends. Jesus showed us what it's like to walk hand in hand with God. And Moses is really the earliest example of that kind of relationship. And, and I think chapter 32 is especially meant to highlight the sort of relationship that God had with Moses. And we're going to see it in contrast with, with uh, the, other the other people um, in, in the story. And, and uh, let me be clear, though. Moses' actions are not always godly. So I think sometimes we struggle with this because we think, okay, someone who talked to God like face-to-face -face like their friends, then Moses must have just been this perfect, sinless, squeaky clean, never messed up guy. That's not the case. And the reason I want to say that tonight is because I think sometimes we think about Moses and we think, well, you know, Moses is up here, right? I mean, you know, there's Jesus because he is God. Then there's Moses and there's Abraham and there's David. But we also know that Moses and Abraham and David were not always the best of people, right? That, that doesn't make excuses that we should just be like they were on their off days, but it gives us hope, I think. And it also reminds us that God loves us as we are, right? And that God wants to be in a relationship with you, and he understands, he knows what he's getting himself into, right? I've told you this before, but on the plaque underneath my, on my desk that says, Pastor, I wrote on it when I first started, um, God, you got me into this, right? This was your idea. I didn't come up with this. I didn't want to do this. I didn't plan this out. This was your idea. I'm going to trust you to get me through it. And I think we should remind ourselves, and, and again, I don't say this to, to, to say we should go up and go out and do what we want to, but Moses was not the most godly person. Um, and, and he didn't always say things that were, all, that were necessarily God-mandated, right? He was a man. He made tons of mistakes. Um, even with this special connection he had with God, even in this close relationship he had with God, um, we're going to learn a lot from these stories that he didn't always do the right thing. And, and Moses was every bit a flawed human, a man with struggles and sorrows and sins as we are. Um, he had issues with his temper. Um, he had issues with anxiety. He had issues with his self-esteem. Um, there are more than one occasion where Moses says to God, I'm done, right? Go ahead and kill me if this is what you're going to put me through. And, and, and that's pretty heavy words to say to God, right? But he meant it because that's how tough this was, this was for him. And again, we find even in this chapter, Moses does some things that I don't think God was very happy with, but he still did them. But God worked through those things just like he is willing to work through those things with us, right? And that he always will be willing. And, and through it all, God's right there loving him, guiding him, talking to him. Moses doesn't always heed every bit of advice that God gives him, just like we don't, right? 
But the New Testament tells us that the failures of the saints of old can be for our benefit. 1 Corinthians 10 says specifically in reference to Moses' life, these things happened to them as an example but that they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So the, the stories of old are for our example that we might say, hey, I can have what they had, but also I don't have to make the same mistakes that they made. Um, that I can overcome the things that they struggled with, but I also have some examples and some help for when I get myself in a situation that I'm not happy with or God isn't happy with. So tonight, though the biggest lesson we're going to learn isn't from Moses, it's really from Aaron, um, we're going to start to see this relationship Moses has with God flesh out and learn something from it. Um, and of course, I think chapter 32 serves to set Moses apart. Um, as this unique friend of God over and against his brother and the other leaders of Israel who really um, show their true colors tonight. So we read a, bit, a little bit of this story last week. You all know this story very well, but I want to read it again before we get too much farther into our talk. So Exodus 32, verse 1 through 6, the word says, When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which, they were, which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God. O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose up early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Just a sidebar, Aaron knew what he was doing a little bit too well, didn't he? Right? He had a, it wasn't like he was just, well, maybe we can do this. He kind of knew what he was doing. Uh, but he acts like he didn't know later on in the story. But the, the scripture says, the story begins um, with Aaron being put to a test. Right? Aaron is the stand-in leader for Israel. Moses is up on the mountain getting the revelation from God. Aaron has been put in the, uh, a, a place of leadership of the nation, but really he's also the high priest. So he's already, he's already kind of got his own role to serve um, alongside Moses. He is the high priest of the nation. So he should know what he's doing, and, 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 but he doesn't act like it. Aaron's role as high priest was to intercede for the people. Remember that. The high priest was to intercede for the people, to pray for the people, to stand in place of them before God and, 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 and help them and, and, and you know, communicate for them. But clearly he wasn't doing that here, right? Um, the people come to Aaron and they give Aaron a commandment. Or they give Aaron a little talking to. They said, listen, this Moses, I don't know who, who is Moses. Not, you know, not like they hadn't just followed him through the wilderness for all these years. Didn't watch him hold the stick up and part the waters. It's not like they hadn't known Moses for a good while. Right? They knew who he was, but they act like they had never heard of him. This Moses that you tell us about, we don't know where he's at. And we're getting a little bit worried about his whereabouts and whether he's going to come back to us. So we've got a plan, Aaron, because you don't look like you've really got too much of a plan. We've got a plan. They demand to Aaron that he should make them gods. Isn't that pretty odd? It's very odd, and especially in our world, you know, gods, we don't make gods, right? You don't just make up your gods, right? There is a god. We believe there is one god. But even in the ancient world, um, you know, there were god, there was this pantheon of gods. There were these people, there were these, you know, things that were accepted as gods in the cultures and the nations. 
This idea that you could just make up a God is just so foreign, but I don't think it's that far from what we have, what we interact with and what we deal with in our own lives. We just don't use this kind of language. So I want to talk about this because I racked my brain for a long time trying to figure out what to do with this. Um, what did they mean when they came to Aaron and they said, make us gods that will go before us. And, and, and the Bible is its own best commentary, so reading on gives us a little bit of insight. Notice what they say after that. Come, make us gods that shall go before us. And then they explain themselves. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He is delayed in his return. So here's what they're saying, basically. God is not meeting our immediate needs. So we're going to make a God who will. That's pretty much their rationale. Hey, this God that you've told us about, or this God that Moses introduced us to that we've never seen because there's no idols to represent him, God, or this God that you're telling us about, Moses, his stand-in, is not meeting our needs. We've got some needs. We're a little bit concerned about what's going on here. We're a little bit tired of waiting, right? We want some things now, and we don't want them later. God is not meeting our needs, so we're going to make a God who will meet our needs. So we don't use that language anymore, but it's pretty much like saying, listen, God, I've read your plan. I don't like it. So I'm just going to go over and do my own thing. Now, in the ancient world, they had this understanding that you had to have some sort of idol or some sort of God that sanctioned your deeds. We've become so sophisticated in our world that we don't need a God to sanction our needs or sanction our actions. We just do what we want to anyway, right? We don't, we don't have to feel good about ourselves and put a little idol in front of us and say, well, that thing told me I could do it. We just do it, but I digress. You hear that God, Moses, aren't doing the things that we want to. God isn't doing the things the way we would script them or expect them, so we're going to take control of our, of our own destiny. Pretty much what they're saying is that we don't agree with what God said. We don't agree with what God's plan is. We don't agree with how God is doing it, so we're going to write our own script. Now, when you put it that way, and again, I've kind of stretched it a little bit, but I, think it's, I don't think it's out of the bounds of, of the intent. Isn't this, is this not our nature's response to God in almost every category? And I know we're holy and we're at church on Wednesday night, but we can relate to this, can't we? Right? I mean, is this not our nature's response to God's will in every category of our lives? The rest of the story plays out and tells us what they're really after. Verse 6 says that they rose up, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That this was all about entertaining themselves. This was all about doing something that made them feel good. This was all about doing what would make them satisfied immediately, what would make them happy immediately. That God had a will, got it away, and they weren't happy with it, and it was a little bit slower than they wanted it to be, a little bit, you know, not as, not as fleshed out, not as flashy as they wanted it to be. So they wanted to do it a different way. They wanted to entertain themselves. Instead of trusting in God's way, they indulged in their own way, and you better believe that your flesh has a way that it wants to do things. You know that, don't you? Right? Try not eating tonight, but, or if you, didn't eat, if you didn't eat before you came, try not, going, try not eating. Your flesh is going to say, I kind of want to eat right now, right? Try not taking the medicine that you're supposed to take, right, that your flesh and that your body is depending on, right? Not going to work out too good, is it, right? Try going a day without doing something that you always do, right? And, and, and in some way, that kind of reflects what is going on in our nature, right? And some of those things aren't bad, but some of those things might be a little bit. 
But now the scriptures have a lot of commandments, all from God for our good, for his glory, but we struggle accepting all of them, don't we? Now, I want to say this. It's, e- it's going to be real easy for us to start thinking about those people for the next few minutes, but I want to think about us people because we're in the building and we need to think about ourselves. So let's not point the finger if we can help it. Um, but we all struggle accepting God's commandments in every category, don't we? Now, this reveals really what is at play when we reject them. I don't mean that we all have this malicious intent, but our nature does not hide its intentions. God's Word gives clarity and understanding to every aspect of our lives. The Scripture teaches us about how to address our emotions, how to live morally, how to live with integrity, how to do the right things financially. And I want to talk about some of the well-known commandments and some common responses to these commandments, not to pick on anybody or pick on you or anybody else, but to really kind of get inside of our own heads that when God says one thing, we immediately want to do a different thing sometimes. And sometimes when God's word says this, our culture says this, and it's not because our culture is worse than us. We have the same thing in us, don't we? There's something in us that when God says, I'm going to do it this way, it's going to be a little while, it's going to be a little different. There's something in us that says, you know what, I'd rather do it my own way, and I might just make my own way. The Bible tells us over and over again that we should love each other, right? Is that not one of the most repeated commandments in the Bible? Love one another, right? As God has loved you, you should love one another. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself over and over again. The Bible says we should forgive each other, right? Not sometimes, but all the time. Not just our, 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 our friends, but our enemies as well. Jesus said you should love your enemies. You should forgive your enemies. How many times? As many times as you have to, right? Yeah, we don't always live that way, do we? The Bible says, one of the examples, Ephesians 4, verse 32, says to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's pretty, pretty clear, isn't it, right? That there aren't any exceptions. When should you be kind to someone? All the time. You should be tender-hearted. You know what that means? That we shouldn't go to somebody and be kind to them, but also kind of have this little hook that comes around every time we're kind. You know what I mean? Like that we're, we're, We say something nice, but we also kind of have to get our flesh in there and remind them that we're kind of still capable of not being nice. <laughs> right? People used to do this all the time when I first started preaching. They would come to me, and they would tell me how great the sermon was, but don't let it go to your head because you might not preach a good sermon next week. And I was thinking, man, I mean, just be nice. I mean, if I fall on my face next Sunday, clap when I do it. I don't care. Now, that was God's people doing that. But I, I learned a lesson back then because I do that too. Sometimes I say, good, I say things to people, well, thank you for doing that, but then I want to remind them of the thing that they did that I didn't like, right? You do that to your wives all the time, don't you, men? You do that to your husbands, don't you, right? Well, thank you for fixing that, but you know there's 15 other things you didn't fix, right? All right and, 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 and isn't it true that we often we have this way of being kind but not being kind, right? We have a way of forgiving people, but we also remind them that we don't have to, we don't, might not forgive them, Right? Oh, oh, I've forgiven you, but I haven't forgotten it. And how does that work? My point is, my point is, sometimes we say that we love someone, but we don't forgive them. And sometimes we say we forgive them, but we don't do it in a loving way. We choose our own way, don't we? We choose to entertain ourselves. We even choose to entertain ourselves by trying to do what God says to do, but we just kind of take it and make make it our own version. We let hatred build up. We let bitterness build up. Come on, don't you? Right? We let our emotions fester and we revel in this madness and we, we so, we're so angry and happy. We plot and we scheme. Right? Because we think God's way is too slow, too unreliable, too complex for us to, to work for us. 
We do this when it comes to our morality. I know this might not land for some of you tonight, or most of you tonight, but I want to talk about it because it's something that our, our culture deals with, it's something that most of people in the world deal with, that we've all struggled with it at some point. Here's what 1 Corinthians says about sexuality, about immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against their own body. Now, what does that mean? God created sex and the sexual desire within everybody. Everybody, it's a gift from God, this ability and this desire to be close and intimate with one person. God's way is very narrow and very straight. Yet, whether we're single, married, divorced, or widowed, we all have it within us to struggle we don't want to wait. We don't want to be exclusive. We don't want to complicate things with labels. We don't want to. We want. We think we're excused because of what we've been through. We think we can just. Uh, we can just think about it, right? Come on. We think we can just imagine something, but it won't hurt anybody else. Sexual sins that are committed with somebody else hurts a myriad of people. They hurt the other person. They hurt the person that was meant for the other person. But even if it's just within our own minds, it hurts us as bad as it would in a literal scenario. Because all sexual sins attack and numb our ability to experience and maintain intimacy. When we say no to God's way, we want to enjoy ourselves, but really we're hurting ourselves. Another area that we struggle with is when it comes to finances. And again, I know this doesn't really land with you all. It comes on a, you, you are, are faithful to your church on a Wednesday night. But listen, the Bible's pretty clear about how we should deal with finances. And the Bible's clear about how we can experience financial freedom. 2 Corinthians 9 says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That means if you give a little, you'll get a little. If you give a lot, you'll get a lot. Not just physically getting a lot, but the joy and the peace that comes along with being generous and being focused and invested in God's kingdom. We don't want to invest in God's kingdom because we're convinced that we should spend our money on better things or things that are more important. Or things that we must attend to prior to. And listen, I know how anxiety-ridden it can get when you owe this or you owe that. But here's what I want to ask you or want to bring up tonight. We don't seem to worry as much or, or at all about missing an investment in God's kingdom, do we? Now, we worry it to ourselves to death when we've got bills going every other direction. But we don't worry at all when we've missed investing in God's kingdom. Or we get over it real quickly, don't we? And here's what I mean. I don't, I don't say this to pick on anybody. This tells me my flesh is not my friend. My flesh will let me off the hook in a minute if I miss something when it comes to God. But it won't let me off the hook for nothing if I miss something of this world. We should not let our flesh make excuses for our souls because our flesh is not our friend. There are some areas of our lives that are just hard to categorize, but every day we have God's Word telling us what we should, how we should react politically in our work lives, in our relationships. Sometimes we just don't do what's right because we don't feel like it. We don't feel like it, it's going to hurt anybody if we don't do this or we do do that. We just think we owe ourselves an out maybe one day. You know, if we're in a relationship with God, we've made a commitment to Him, haven't we? To serve Him, to honor Him, to put Him first. God takes His part in the relationship pretty seriously. We often are up and down about our end of things, and Proverbs 11 tells it pretty clearly. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Every day is a part of the process of knowing God and growing in a relationship with God. I cast this net really wide tonight because I want to, I want to get us thinking. When it comes to our everyday lives, privately, personally, relationally, professionally, where do you take your cues from? 
Do you let God have an influence on every angle of your life? Not just what the Bible says about when you go to, about dying and going to heaven. Not just what the Bible says about church. Do you let God give you insight regarding every category of your life? Right from the bedroom to the boardroom, from your finances to your days off, the Word of God, the Bible, God has something to say and has something good in mind regarding every angle and aspect of our lives. Isaiah 30 says, You will hear, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or to the left, God has something to say about every aspect of our lives and it's good for us. When you come up to a decision or a reaction in any category, do you, speak, do you seek God's will or do you make up a God who will go along with your will? And here's the thing about Christianity. We've kind of made up a lot of different versions of Jesus that goes, goes along with any different aspect of our lives, haven't we? Because there's a lot of versions of Jesus going on out there, right? But there's only one scripture. There's only one word. There's only one God. There's only one Jesus. But we like to tweak and, and, and make our own ideas Doing the right thing. Doing the right thing, obeying God's will, even if it sets us back initially, always sets us up for what's best eventually and, most of all, eternally. It comes down to who are we going to trust. These people at Mount Sinai, they had not yet learned to rest in the Lord. They wanted immediate satisfaction and certainty about what was going on. If that's what we come to God expecting, we're not going to get it. But what does God offer us, what God does offer us is much, much better. And, and think about what they were ignoring. God had rescued them. He protected them. He revealed himself to them. Yet they allowed one delay to distract them from many wonders. Do you get that? God delayed, Moses delayed, and they allowed one delay to distract them from the many wonders they had witnessed already. See, we need to be on guard every single day because the enemy loves to cause us to stumble over one little thing and lose sight of a hundred of other things. Isn't that what he did in the Garden of Eden? They had all these things they could do, and yet he made the focus on the one thing they couldn't do. And here's the thing. Any delay or restriction from God is always meant to prepare or protect us from losing the blessings of this life. You can write that down. That's not, that's not a quote from the scripture, but I pulled that from as many verses as I could. Any delay or restriction from God is always meant to prepare you or protect you from losing a blessing. I want to close by contrasting Moses and Aaron. Aaron failed his test, and now Moses is going to be put to a test in these next few verses. The Lord said to Moses, Go and get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that I may wrath May, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. So you hear what God said to Moses? Now, uh, verse 10, he says, let me alone because him and Moses are talking like, hey, I can't do this without telling you about it and I'm not going to do this without telling you about it. So they're both in this relationship, right? They're, they're you know, serious about this. And God says, Moses, leave me alone for a little bit. 
because I'm going to go take care of these people, and then it's just going to be me and you, and we'll start over. And then verse 11, Moses pleads with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. In all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever that tells me that he had already been given Genesis because he just quoted it verse 14 so the Lord relented from the harm which he said and he would do said and would do to this people so I don't think God ever intended on wiping them out I think he was testing Moses and he was giving Moses an opportunity to step up and do what Aaron didn't do you see the people tempted Aaron But God tests Moses specifically, and remember back in verse 5 when Aaron says this, or verse 4, excuse me, Aaron said, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron rewrote history to satisfy the people. Aaron changed the story. Oh, this is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. But now Moses remembers history in verse number 13 to save them. Our salvation is always going to be coming, always going to come from God's word, not from our attempts to change it and twist it and to make it what we want it to be. Moses leans on God's word. And what does God's word remind him of? God's promise and God's faithfulness and God's commitment. Every commandment from God's word is always rooted in those things. He remembers God's word. He quotes God's word. And that brings salvation to the people. In summary, Aaron was supposed to intercede for the people, but instead he entertained them. Moses took on the role of intercession to save them. And just like that in verse 14, God relented from the harm which he said he would do to this people. Just like that, he spares them, just like he spares us again and again. Here's what I want to land tonight, where I want to land tonight and what I want to leave you with. We don't have to go along with the sin of our world, and we shouldn't go along with it, but we shouldn't condemn it either. We shouldn't condemn the world, right? We don't have to go along with it, and we've spent our, enough time to not talking about why we can't go along with it. The Bible says one thing, and we've got to do what the Bible says, not what we think or feel or want to do sometimes. And we even want to do the same thing the world's doing, so it's not just their problem, is it? We don't have to, and we should not go along with the sin of our world, but we should not condemn it. We should intercede for it, right? Because Moses could have pointed the finger and said he prays for them. He intercedes for them, and he goes down to lead them and model a better way. When we see our world doing just what this crowd did, changing God's word, changing the scriptures, changing who God is to fit their own needs, that happens, it's happened before. Moses' response, his prayer to God was, God, don't judge them. Spare them. He intercedes, he goes down to lead, and he models a better way, and we can do the same thing, and we should do the same thing. Church, thank you very much for being here tonight. Thank you for letting God's word speak to you tonight as it's spoken to me as preparing this. I look forward to studying the rest of Moses' story together, and I pray that we might can follow that path of Moses, interceding, 
leading and modeling the way of God's word. There's a lot of people in our world that don't know what the word says. Yes, there's a lot that's changed it and a lot of, a lot of people that's disobeyed it, but a lot of people don't know. And the only way they will know is if we follow it and model it for them. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that just like Moses remembered your word and remembered what you said, we can remember what you've said and know that it's good and know that it has good things to say for us and to us and, and good things to say about us and, and, and good things about our future and what you're going to do for us and with us. And God, thank you for this word tonight. Um, thank you that you for sparing those people. Lord, I, it's crazy what they did. And we look, read, read that story and we think it's comical. Why would they build a golden calf? Why would they worship it? Why would they change, turn from you to something else? Lord, it makes no sense, but it's a lot like what we do. Your word says we should do something, but we decide not to do it. And we even change our ideas about you and alter our opinions and our beliefs about you to fit our own narrative, to fit our own agenda. God, forgive us for doing that. Forgive us for not always trusting you as having the best for us and saying the best for us. Father, I pray we might would lean into your word. Instead of rewriting history, we would remember it. Remember that your word is good, that you have good things to say to us. Father, I pray we might would intercede for our world that is indeed lost and is indeed uh, broken in many ways. Lord, the world, the world that has changed and turned away from your word, we intercede for them tonight. And God, help us to be leaders. Help us to model a better way. Because if we don't lead and if we don't model, they may never know what we know. Father, we love you. We thank you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.